This is Series 4 of Brave New Girl Podcast. I'm Lou Hamilton, artist and author of Brave New Girl, How to Be Fearless, Fearless, and my latest book, Dare to Share, helping you become an awesome guest on podcasts, raise your visibility, and attract new audiences into your world. I welcome you here to stories of real-life Brave New Girls who share with you how they found purpose and courage on the roller coaster journey of entrepreneurship and creative enterprise. Emma Livingston is one of around 130,000 adults living with cerebral palsy in the UK, making it one of the largest disability groups in the country. A trained speech therapist and married with three children, Emma realised through her own experience that those suffering with CP are abandoned by the authorities once they reach 18. This is her story of how she went from complainer to campaigner. Welcome, Emma, in this replay episode to Brave New Girl Podcast. been for you? Uh, nothing less than eventful. <laughs> um, it's been an interesting learning curve having three children at home, a husband that's working from home and trying to run a charity all at the same time. Quite challenging then. <laughs> um, it's been busy but I'm trying to focus on the, the positives of um, all being together for this period of time. We might not ever get it back again. So. Yeah that's true isn't it that's that's a positive when it when it all comes together and all works it it's a good thing so i'm going to ask you to take me back to when you were first diagnosed with cerebral palsy and can you explain for those people who don't know what it is what it is and how you came to be being diagnosed okay so um cerebral palsy is a neurological condition and it fe- affects movement is a movement disorder um, you have difficulties with muscle and coordination it affects about 160,000 people in this country it's actually the largest childhood disability and it's a, it is as a result of some brain damage that occurs either um, before during or after birth and actually people can be diagnosed with cerebral palsy up until the age of two I was six weeks premature and I had a very rapid birth They don't actually know why I ended up with cerebral palsy, although that wasn't detected till later on when I was about two years old. And although I'd reached many of my early milestones, I still wasn't walking. And so a local GP, actually, who was visiting my dad at home, something that wouldn't happen uh, now, he was visiting my dad and noticed that I was still sitting in the corner, happily chatting away and playing, but I wasn't on my feet. And he was a little bit concerned. And then after some investigations, I was sent up to Great Ormond Street Hospital for an MRI scan and they diagnosed cerebral palsy. And so what did that mean for you as a child uh, growing up? Uh, Were you overprotected? Were you encouraged to just get on on with it? At home as a family, it was was just really about getting up and getting on with with things. And I wasn't really allowed to use um, CP as an excuse um, to get get out of of much and although they were protective and very supportive in terms of getting me the best treatment or the best support I went to mainstream school and it was very much you you might walk differently than other people you might fall more often but actually um, you're the same as everyone else and their aspirations for me were exactly the same as my um, brothers and, and sister and growing up I guess I didn't have any role models of other people that had cerebral palsy and um, it wasn't something we taught widely about which is something that really 
when I look back surprises me given that that's what I talk about all the time now but we didn't and I, I guess having nobody give me allowances sometimes was frustrating and um, I remember a time at school where I was encouraged to join in with the cross-country running and then when I um, got back to class and I was the last one back then I lost all the house points because um, I was slower than everybody else so I guess there were times like that that it was frustrating and I did feel very different and I guess that affected me more in my teens um, as I as I grew up and went through secondary school I didn't have particularly high self-esteem or or confidence I suppose but then on the other hand I've grown up with tenacity that maybe other people don't have a tenacity to succeed um, in my working life I guess I set myself high aspirations and goals maybe because I feel or I felt that um, I needed to prove that I I was worth having so I had to be um, as got good if not better than than anybody else because I was asking people to make other allowances for me but I went on to go to university um, to train as a speech and language therapist this is something that I always wanted to do and to um, to get married and have three children so I guess none of the, the the life goals that my peers had were any different to mine when you talk about the services that you were offered, medical services and physio, that was very much part of uh, growing up, part of your childhood. Uh, what kind of things were were you given and, and to what end? What was the aim? Cerebral palsy, surprisingly, is known as a childhood disability. It's recognised as one of the, the, the biggest childhood disabilities. And so paediatric services are set up quite well. So at least when I was a child, I had support from the local physiotherapy team, from the local paediatrician, and um, I was offered twice weekly support when I was very little until I got on my feet, and then weekly support. And I was seen under the auspices of the paediatric team um, near where I lived. And that was until the age of 16. At 16, um, I was discharged from paediatric services. And that's not uncommon when you talk to other people with cerebral palsy, whether it's 16 or 18. But for me at 16, um, I remember being in a room with the paediatric team. Ridiculously, I wasn't included in the conversation, but they were talking to my parents um, and they had decided that I had reached my potential, that I was I was able to live uh, inverted commas normal life I was walking and I was achieving at school and that they felt that I had reached my potential and that's because up until very recently it was felt that early intervention was important for somebody with cerebral palsy and that one the skills that one acquired during um, childhood would then see them through for the rest of, of their life. I have I guess mild cerebral palsy in that my difficulties are very much physical. Um, I have um, what was termed a right-sided hemiplegia, so I have a weakness in my arm and in my leg and my coordination is difficult. But as you can hear, there's nothing wrong with my speech. There is nothing wrong with my swallow. I can use my upper body and, and I, I don't have any associated learning difficulties or processing issues that other people do, to name just a few of the difficulties. And that's potentially some of the difficulties that is quite an umbrella term. It just describes brain injury in or around birth. So at the time, uh, they, the um, clinicians felt that 
um, I'd reached my potential and it was time to fly the nest as it was. What happens then is that you're transferred. Well, I was discharged. So the person that was coordinating my care was my GP, my general practitioner. What we know now is that living long term with a, a disability puts extra strain on the body. And uh, the medics talk about comorbidities or different things that can be impacted upon by having living and using your muscles in a particular way. So things like arthritis, things like extreme fatigue, and importantly, a decline in mobility as you get older. But in the spirit of positivity that we've always, I've always tried to approach things, it was understandable that at that time they didn't realise that or they didn't understand or appreciate it. So the understanding that things can change for an adult is very much a new thing. But it does explain why there isn't really any services set up for adults. The other big step change is that for the majority of people with cerebral palsy, their life expectancy is now viewed to be equivalent to um, the rest of the world, the rest of the population. But at the time, I guess when I was smaller, life expectancy was supposed to be limited. So given that, I guess they thought that we weren't anticipated to live much into adulthood and therefore services didn't need to be to be addressed, really. What was the change? Was that just more research? Was that more people pushing for a greater understanding? And I guess it's, it's people playing with uh, with semantics. But the, the understanding is that the um, brain injury that you, you acquire at birth doesn't change. So actually, interestingly, uh, not many years ago, I had another MRI scan and I can still see the small area of of injury and that hasn't changed since the one that they took when I was two but what does change is the impact that you have that so because um, I use certain muscles in different ways I've put um, excess strain on my body particularly for me that there was strain on my hips um, and on my joints and so what happened was um, I began to develop arthritis and the other thing that that I didn't know was that because of the way that I used my body, my hip joints hadn't developed in the same way as other people's. And therefore, I, had an, I have an associated condition known as hip dysplasia, where my hip joint doesn't sit properly. And that caused um, excess strain on, on, on the joints. So, um, but, they, but that wasn't something that was known so widely then. I guess what has changed is that People have started talking about it. When I started asking questions about cerebral palsy, I was somebody that hadn't really associated with the cerebral palsy community. And what I found was that there were a lot of people that were disgruntled and frustrated by the lack of service and the lack of understanding within the medical community. So when I started having problems with my movement and that I found that I was having more difficulty walking, I felt found that I was becoming um, increasingly tired when I um, left university embarked on being a speech and language therapist which involved lots of domiciliary visits and lots of sitting on small chairs and a full-time job and um, that became really difficult for me and I gradually had to reduce the amount of time that I spent working and also the age group so I started with working with very small children and then decided that small chairs really didn't work for me and that I needed um, children that could sit higher up so that I could work with them easily. And that is an experience of many, many people with cerebral palsy, is that their skills and their abilities change as they get older. But because CP wasn't supposed to be a, a progressive difficulty, that it wasn't really acknowledged and understood. So you've got two teams of, of people, really. You have the medics that when you go with a problem, 
they put everything down to CP. So if I went because I had a pain in my hip or a pain in my back, they would say, well, it's muscle strain because you're living with CP, something that they now term as diagnostic overshadowing, I found out yesterday. And everything gets put down to CP, which means things are missed. So the arthritis that were developing my hips were missed. Or you have the other extreme, and that is the, the clinicians that don't believe that you should be getting worse because of cerebral palsy, because it's not a progressive disorder. And so there's lots of confusion around um, how to treat adults with cerebral palsy. And indeed, there aren't any services. So there aren't any specialists that specialise in, in adults with CP. So and because it can affect lots of different systems in your body, so it can be an orthopaedic problem or a neurology problem or a problem with your eyes or a problem with your um, circulatory system. So when you go to see professionals with, within those specialist areas, because they don't really understand the underlying neurology, they try to treat you like anybody else. And often uh, there's lots of misdiagnosis. When I first met you, you were still sort of moving around fairly easily and very determined to get on with life and, and carry on as normal as possible. But sort of gradually things started to change and and the challenges of being a mum, of, of still working. I would love to say that at that point I learned how to ask for help and that I had changed my attitude of succeeding come what may. I think that's something that I've learned latterly. At the time, again, with the background that I didn't expect things to change, it was a case of probably being forced into it. So as I talked about, I had gradually changed my work life to reduced hours and I'd made changes. I started to realise that, you know, if I wanted to go and do a full day's work, then I couldn't go and socialise at night. Or if I was had a, a big night out, I would have to do less during the day. So um, those things I started to, to notice. And increasingly, as I'd gotten older, I had more pain. But, uh, but as I said, that was kind of often I'd go to the GP and, and being offered antidepressants because uh, it was often felt that, that, you know, I wasn't coping well with it rather than actually acknowledging what was going on. And it wasn't until I actually physically couldn't walk one day that, that I actually thought, well, something's going on here and I actually need to, to sort it out. I, I'm lucky. I feel very privileged that um, as somebody who... Um, has had access to other medical professionals and um, I had friends who were physiotherapists and speech and language therapists you know I said to one of my colleagues one of my friends you know it's really strange but I suddenly I'm not able to lift my foot over the over a curb and and actually in, in far more pain than I have been before and she said can I come and have a look and I said yes sure and she said the thing is Emma what you're describing is somebody that's got a dislocated hip but when I look at it it isn't dislocated, but I do think you should go and have an x-ray and check it out. So I merrily took myself to the GP and, and told him my story, her my story. Again, I had a good relationship with my GP. What she had come to realise over the years was that there weren't any services and she really didn't know what to do, but she would work with me. So she'd often say, what do you think, Emma, or where would you like to be referred? And at times, I've been referred up to a polio clinic because it's a bit like polio. So maybe they can they can help you. And indeed, it is a, it is a long term condition that people are living with. So some of the advice is very relevant, um, but there isn't any specialist. So she sent me down to have an X-ray because that's what I asked for. That was pretty poo at A&E, although they did take the X-ray. But they weren't skilled enough to notice the differences 
um, that a late orthopaedic surgeon had, was able to see. And so she crucially said to me, I think it's a touch of sciatica, go home and take some painkillers. Oh, but before you go, would you like a wheelchair? Because it really does look quite difficult for you to walk at the moment. And I guess that tenacity or that, that ability to not stop at the obstacles made me, made me question, made me ask more. And, and I, again, I found an orthopaedic surgeon who importantly was somebody who'd worked with children with cerebral palsy. So he really understood what the neurological impact was on the condition that I presented with. So he diagnosed hip dysplasia, but he was very cautious about the surgeries that he offered me because he knew that my long, my recovery would be very different and my reaction to surgeries would be very different. It was a really large surgery. It took me 18 months to recover from. I took the decision to have the surgery because really I didn't have a lot of choice, although I did seek other opinions. And um, as I spoke about before, I had lots of different responses. So I had one orthopedic surgeon said, well, you've got cerebral palsy. I'm not going to touch you to the other surgeon who had written lots and lots about hip dysplasia and the different types of surgery. But when I asked him what would be the impact of having CP on the surgery that you're offering me, he said it won't make any difference at all. And I knew by then that actually it would make quite a fundamental difference. So I went back to the, to the surgeon that um, was used to having an understanding of cerebral palsy. And that was great. But, but what wasn't so good was the aftercare or the understanding of the, the other members of the team that cerebral palsy was having an impact on my recovery. So in hospital, I think he wrote in my notes to the surgeon, please, please be nice to Emma. She's not over exaggerating the amount of pain that she's in. I was told to pull myself together on several occasions and I wasn't given the right medication to stop the spasms that I was experiencing because of the of the pain. I was given lots of analgesics and painkillers, but they were just making it really difficult for me to mobilise and get out of bed, which meant that I couldn't leave the hospital. And it wasn't until a physio who had had experience of, of CP from being in Australia that said, actually, if we give Emma a medication to support the spasms and we deal with the spasms through physiotherapy, then actually she's going to be more able to mobilise and get home. But I got home not on a pair of crutches like they anticipated, on a, a very large gutter frame, which is very wide. I wasn't able to get out of a chair easily. We couldn't get through the doors in our house. And so my bedroom was in the kitchen um, and I had to use a commode because our downstairs toilet was too small for the frame. So it had a really large impact on our very young family and on my abilities. I became someone that was completely dependent. And that's when I started to ask questions about why there was such a lack of understanding of um, cerebral palsy for adults. So I, I had started, I recovered from my right hip surgery, but then unfortunately very soon after that, my left hip failed. And at that point, because that was my stronger hip, my stronger side, um, everybody was very concerned. Um, they didn't think I'd be able to tolerate another big another surgery like the um, hip modification surgery that I'd had. My only choice was to have a hip replacement. And again, this comes back to knowledge. So they were very frightened to um, give somebody with cerebral palsy a hip replacement because of the spasms and the risk of pulling out the replacement, but also because I was very young. So you had a juxtaposition where I was presenting as somebody had much older hips. Um, they acknowledged that, well, that could be the case with somebody with cerebral palsy. But the only treatment was a hip replacement that they didn't give to someone who was till they were over 65. 
Um, and so their solution was wait until I was entirely into, in a wheelchair and unable to mobilise at all. And then they would have no choice but to give me a hip replacement, uh, despite the risks. Understandably, my physiotherapy team or that my physiotherapy friends and team um, said, well, that's ridiculous, because if you wait until then, your chances of recovery are going to be very limited. But at that point, I was living a life where my mobility was really was really reduced and um, I was spending a lot more time in a wheelchair particularly out of the house and I was finding stairs even though I'd accomplished after six months getting back up the stairs they were becoming more difficult and my physio said that the thing that, that really struck her was that I'd say I don't really know what leg to stand on because they were both painful and so when I knew that that, that was in prospect and I had a prospect of being in a chair we decided to make renovations to the house so making doorways bigger so that chairs could get through making things level access and then because we found it very difficult we, we were looking for a bungalow we were looking for one level living but with five with three children and five of us that's quite difficult to, to find around London um, and so we actually invested in a lift <laughs> which means that all of all areas of my house is access are accessible to me and that's one thing that I learned about disability is that often it's the environment that disables you rather than the disability yourself itself. And I have you know, done things like bought an oven where the, um, the oven door slides into each other, a.k.a. Uh, Bake Off. When I saw, saw that, I thought, oh, that's brilliant because I can really get up close to the oven and, and balance and take take something out much easy, much more easily when we redesign my kitchen so that there is always a surface that I can put something down on very quickly so I don't have to walk with hot um, pans of water and things like that. And with subtle changes and adaptions, actually you don't feel disabled anymore. So was there a change in your own mindset from when you were you were in recovery, you were in a wheelchair, you, um, you weren't able to get sort of upstairs and downstairs, and then making those changes. So there was there a determination in yourself to not be stopped by your circumstances? I guess, but in all honesty, I had three children and a husband, and I didn't feel like I had very much choice. Um, I do remember a doctor saying to me, wow, other people would have sat down and given up by now. And I legitimately said to him, I don't understand what you mean. What does that mean? What does that look like? Because for me, that's that's not really an option. <laughs> I guess it's not within my D DNA. I think, you know, I've got young children. I wanted to be fit. I wanted to be active. I wanted to be the mum at the school gate for them. And so um, whilst we, we, we made all those changes in our house, I was also grappling with this wasn't supposed to happen. We, you know, things weren't supposed to degenerate. You know, um, when I met Derek, my husband, he asked me about the, the CP. And I said, well, this is about, as, you know, if you can put up with this, this is about as, as good as it gets, you know, we'll, we'll be fine. And, and then I was in a situation where he was the person that had to lift me in and out of bed at night or push me around in a wheelchair if we wanted to, to go out and do something as a family. So it, there were big changes. I guess what changed for me was was owning it, was starting to talk about it, was saying to people that I had these difficulties, although that they were becoming more and more evident anyway, but also accepting help. So one of the ladies that, that is now part of our community was talking to me one day about how she felt with a small child and how she worried about going to the park because um, what happens if 
if she fell over and the child was there on her own or the child ran and she couldn't couldn't keep up and I sort of said well I just tell my friends <laughs> and she said well what do you mean I said well when I was recovering from surgery and I had a two-year-old a very fast two-year-old I would meet up with a very good friend and tell them that they were responsible if if he started to run and that they would go and get me for me and she said to me wow you tell your friends you have CP and it was at that point I realized how much I'd moved forward and that I now own it as a as a condition and I'm very open about the things that I can and can't do I know and particularly now working with a CP community that there are lots of us who who like me grew up in mainstream schools um, who were so determined to succeed that they find it really difficult to be different or to ask for support or and the thought of using a, a wheelchair or using crutches or a mobility aid is something that's abhorrent to them and, and I was that person but now if I want to go and uh, collect my children from school I will use my crutches because I don't want to fall over if we want to go to London Zoo for the day I will opt to go into the wheelchair because I now decided that I prefer to be in a wheelchair and be involved than being the mummy that has to sit on the bench at the entrance and wait for them to go around and have fun so you slowly adapt interestingly the people that I've met that grew up um, perhaps a little bit before me and that they were often in special schools and had other people around them with cerebral palsy or with disabilities they seem to be much more accepting of their disability and the help that they require and it's something that's really interesting to me. Have you found that it's affected your up until that point maybe less so now but um, that it affected your mental health? My mental health in in, in so far as to say I wasn't as confident perhaps as, as maybe I am now definitely as a teenager it, it affected me you know um talking about anchors um having to hit the school playground again with my own children brought back all the, the the fear and the anxiety that I had as a child and and there are still times when I, I don't like to feel different but I guess I'm I'm old enough and ugly enough to reason it through in my head so so yes it, it has and and latterly probably just frustration it is very frustrating being tired all the time. It is frustrating when you spend a lot of time coordinating appointments or going to hospital appointments and then getting very little feedback or success. But those are the times that I get most frustrated now. The kind of the lack of understanding of, of other people is the thing that, that, that frustrates me the most. The lack of parity of care, and, and that's one of the founding principles of the, of the charity, um, for me is that other long-term conditions are afforded much more money, much more research and much, much more understanding from the medical community and have a much higher profile than cerebral palsy does. And yet we are a larger population than MS and Parkinson's. We're the largest childhood disability cohort, which means we're larger than um, Down syndrome or autism. And those are much more in the public domain and there is a lot more understanding of those conditions and a lot more research into them and for some reason cerebral palsy hasn't been afforded that and the the other thing is that the image of people with cerebral palsy um, is somewhat distorted and that's potentially because when organizations like the spastic society that later became scope they were parents that were trying to fight for the education of their children and so the image you have is of a somebody who's paraplegic and in a wheelchair and has very little life chances but in fact, cerebral palsy is a spectrum and we have 
um, MPs that have cerebral palsy, there are actors and actresses that have cerebral palsy, there are barristers who have cerebral palsy, and we are a community within a larger community of all sorts of abilities, but importantly, it's a lifelong condition. It doesn't stop when you're a child, it does have an impact when you're when you're older. So I guess they're they're my frustrations now. So pretty full on in trying to sort of manage your own care and getting the right help and support. And then something shifted for you and you wrote a blog from complainer to campaigner. And I think that was quite a a sort of pivotal moment for you, wasn't it? Can you explain what was going on for you and, and why you changed from focusing on you to focusing on the wider CP community? I guess I'd always been told that somebody would do something about it someday. (laughs) There was lots of acknowledgement from everybody that there was no adult support. The day that I was out of hospital and I was given six weeks of physiotherapy support and the target that everybody had given me was for me to be able to independently get out of my chair so that I could get to the toilet on my own. And after six weeks, and I was yet able, not able to, to get out of the chair. And when I said to the, the physio, so what happens now? Because I haven't reached that goal. She said to me, we'll have to change the goal, which kind of left me speechless. <laughs> um, also, having been a, a, you know, a, a therapist myself, I just felt like we were trapped by a system. And there wasn't an understanding that you can't recover from a surgery in the same way as somebody else if you've got an underlying condition. And also, you know, I had, my second surgery I had, when I did get my hip replacement, I, I got it because I was able to play privately and also I was able to be tenacious and keep going and, and do the research and prove to the, the, the clinicians that I knew the risks of having a, a hip replacement, but that I had made the decision that I wanted to be mobile for my children. And I was able to fight that fight. And yet, despite that, and despite being given a hip replacement, I still, and the second surgery, and being very equipped to, for this surgery and actually having done a lot of planning about pain management, and I ticked all the boxes, I still ended up in hospital um, with people who didn't understand cerebral palsy, who wouldn't allow me to um, have access to the neurophysio because it was an orthopedic surgery that I'd had, so it was only the orthopedic physios. I ended up with blood clots in my feet um, and I also um, ended up with a grade four heel sore which meant that um, I wasn't able to put weight through through my legs because and I luckily found out how dangerous they were and that was because I was kept immobile so that I didn't pull my hip replacement out so that there are swings and roundabouts and I guess at that point I hit 40 and You just think, well, if not now, when? If I'm not going to have a go now, when am I going to have a go? I I guess my coaching background has made me believe that if we don't have a go, we will never know. And and I suppose the fact that that there weren't any other charitable third sector organisations specifically offering support for adults, I saw that there was kind of a gap. But I didn't intend really to start a charity. My, my intention really was simply to start asking some questions about um, what services there were and more importantly, why there weren't any services. And also to try and start to 
um, connect with um, a CP community. But what I found was a, a disgruntled and frustrated community who um, were very understandably very negative. Um, but that's not me. <laughs> I, I guess through my job and through coaching, I'm all about empowerment and it, and all about well, what, what can we do for ourselves? What, what can we do for ourselves to help ourselves? And, and I'm all about learning and developing. So I really want to understand why there was only five pieces of research on adult CP and why there weren't any services. And I began to ask questions and, and I can take a lot of credit for things. But really what I found was there were a lot of doors that were easy to open. And all I really did was start sharing my story, start talking to people about my experience of cerebral palsy. And then lots of people said, yes, me too. Or other um, conferences that I talked at, um, clinicians were coming up you know, to, and talking to me and saying, wow, that's the experience that, that I've had with my clients. Someone really does have to do something about it. And actually I found that there were lots of people that are beginning to talk about it. So um, yes, I had the tenacity. Yes, I had the passion because I was living it. Um, and yes, I really do believe in empowering others. But also, I think it's about right time, right place. And I think there are things changing in the world that, that made it OK to talk about and that people were starting to look for answers. And so um, it's a great ambition to start a charity to help a community um, and to create change. Um, in reality, what is that like? It's tough. It's, it's tough. And I, and I would say that I started sharing stories and connecting people, like I um, said. And then what I later learned was actually that that's, that's a really good marketing technique. Seth Broden talks about building a tribe. And actually, that's what I was trying to do. I didn't have that label, but actually, that's what I was doing. I was, I was building a tribe of people who were all interested in cerebral palsy from various different aspects. So um, we engage with researchers, we engage with medics, we engage with carers and families, and importantly, we engage with the community. And we were connecting people and helping them to um, build alliances and, and support groups. And so what we're doing is we're building, we're building a tribe. What we ultimately want is, is, a, is a change in services for adults with CP. But what I've learned is that that can only happen um, with an empowered community, with the voice of the community, by giving adults with cerebral palsy their own voice. That's important because now the researchers want the voice of the community because that's how they get funding for their research. If, it, if the research isn't relevant for the population, then they're not going to get the funding. So they want to engage with us. The services that are now being developed or slowly starting to change within the medical community are only because we're beginning to demand more and they can show the commissioners that there is a big demand for the services. So we need the voice of community. And also people like NHS England and the policymakers will really only start to listen when there is a, there is a, um, a momentum for change. Um, and that's what we're trying to create. But in doing so, in trying to build that connected vocal community, what we need to do is support the community. So, oh, that's what I'm really passionate about. And, and COVID has been really brilliant for that in that it's taken away the geography that we always use as a barrier. 
to and come together as a community to support one another. So for us, the, the charity is built on three pillars. One is about community support, so building um, an engaged community that can support one another. So we're providing helplines, but also the virtual meetups. I guess we're also trying to show them positive images of cerebral palsy so that they can start believing in what they deserve and what they can achieve, particularly for those teenagers that are transitioning into adulthood, which is a particularly difficult time. So we're all about engaging a community so they can support each other and support themselves. And then the, the other, the next pillar is about self-care. So it's about helping the community manage to be an expert in their own condition. Um, so what we found, and this is something I'm really passionate about, is that is that by exercising, by changing your diet, there are things that you can do in order to support yourself. And I sit with a group of people now who are adults who didn't know that things were going to change and didn't have the opportunity, or at least they feel like they didn't have the opportunity to do something about it beforehand. But what we now know is about the power of exercise, the power of keeping active, the power of eating healthy diets and all of those kind of things. So we want to empower people to look after themselves and to become expert in their own condition. To be able to go to a GP or to go to the medics and know what they want to ask for and be own their own condition and become expert in themselves. So that's really important to us. And then I guess thirdly, it's about building that patient voice and giving a voice to the community so that we raise the profile of CP amongst the general um, population and also amongst those policymakers that ultimately are the people that can make the change for us. And are you finding that uh, there is increasing research on the back of what you're discovering? One of our little successor stories, I suppose, is that when I met um, a lady called Dr. Jennifer Ryan, who was interested in, in CP and adults, as you can imagine, I was quite nervous about going to meet somebody who was so highly educated. Um, and I sat down with, with her, somebody who I now call Jen, who's a very good friend. And I said, I'm really sorry, but um, research was never my strength. I don't think I've done it since I was at university. And I can only find five papers on adults and CP. And she said, that's because there is only five papers, Emma. And in the last three years, there is now um, a growing momentum of, of research out there. So what we've been able to do through her work and through um, me talking at various different conferences, both in this country and internationally is connect with the international community um, and find out what's happening there but also um, get people interested in cerebral palsy as a lifelong condition and begin to do the research that's necessary so so that is changing there are groups now associated with Brunel University um, and Surrey University and just this week we heard about an alliance a coalition of people that are, are getting together to look at long-term conditions as a whole but that cerebral palsy is, is a large part of long-term developmental long-term conditions. So it is really exciting. It's a bit of a chicken and egg because you need the research um, to change the medical opinion. But also you need the medics to start changing their practice that supports the, the research. So it was about st starting. I guess the reason that we started there was because that was my comfort zone. Talking to medics is where I'm comfortable. Understanding the NHS is what, what I know. And that's why I feel very privileged, because I don't think I would have got into as many doors as I have 
without being somebody who is also a medical practitioner because I am talked to and I'm treated very differently. But what is really important about Adult CP Hub is that it's a community-led organisation. So I can sit with many hats on. I can sit as somebody who's a, a medical um, practitioner, but I can also sit as a person who has cerebral palsy. A lot of what I'm doing isn't my comfort zone. So marketing isn't my comfort zone. Social media is definitely not my um, comfort zone. And, and even looking at research is not my comfort zone. But what I had learned through being a speech and language therapist and through coaching was that I could stand and tell my story. And then so have you found that through that, that you've slowly gathered uh, a team of people who have different skills and abilities and that you sort of all together can reach further? We aren't yet at the stage where we employ other people. So it has been very much um, relying on friends and family and, and people that we connect with to offer their, their skills. But we now have a very engaged support team of both medical professionals, research, and then so all of our um, branding was done um, by Ogilvy and Maver. Um, and that, that really helped because that gave us a professional image. That, that told everybody that we were serious. And, and also, I haven't mentioned my colleague, Miriam, so she's a physiotherapist. Um, and so between us, we can cover um, lots of the, ba the bases. We are engaged with the Chartered Society of Physiotherapists, the CSP, with the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists. So kind of two of the, the founding principles for us, for the charity, is one that we agreed that we were going to go forward with positivity. I perhaps it's my personality, perhaps it's my background, is that um, I don't do well in environments where we just sit talking about how difficult things are and that I wanted to move the agenda forward. And I wanted to do that with compassion, with understanding that our understanding of cerebral palsy has now changed. So we understand why things are the way they are and the hist history has brought us to this point. But then now we know more, we should change things and we should move in a positive direction. So we try and do that with compassion and positivity. The other thing is that we really want to we really want to stand out as an organization that is for the people and led by the people without wanting to steal everybody else's terms. But it is very much um, a patient-led organization. And thirdly, that we wanted to do it in partnership, that you know, I have no interest in, in owning anything, and that the more alliances that we build up and the better the better outcome and the more chance we have of success so we have um we have as i talked about there's a research alliance there is a group of people that we're affiliated with there is now um, a cp coalition of other small charities that work with people with cp across the spectrum from uh, from children through to adult that we're a part of as the adult voice on that group of people and then most recently um, we're a part of a um a community rehab alliance of organisations, charities and, and um, professional bodies who are urging the government and um, NHS England to look at rehabilitation services for long-term conditions. Again, cerebral palsy, we want cerebral palsy to be included in those long-term conditions because they're not. And so we, we want to give a voice in various different platforms so that we can change the message and that by doing things in partnership, we're more likely to get change than trying to do it alone. 
So you have a very powerful uh, goal and dream for the charity. And I'd like to know what your vision for the future is for yourself. In the short term, to make um, Adult CP Hub um, a successful community organisation and that eventually CP is recognised as a lifelong condition and that sufferers receive adequate support and, and um, so that they can lead they can have a better quality of life and an increased participation in life and that that people with CP are more recognised as people that add value to our society. So that's what I want for, for them. For me, I guess if I'm, if I'm honest, it's about um, seeing these changes start to happen within my lifetime. But m- I guess more importantly, you know, I, I have goals I would love to do a TED Talk or, or, or to get to a wider audience, they're, they're kind of very personal goals. And for the charity to be the leading charity for CP, the go-to, and move away from um, the historic places that people go go to. But really, it's about inspiring my children, and particularly my daughter, to achieve that if you set yourself a goal, that anything's possible, regardless of, of your ability or your disability, it's about remaining active and pain-free and out of the chair for as long as possible so that I can be the mum that I want to be. And I want to be inspiring for my achievements and not because of my disability. All too often, um, I call it inspiration porn. Um, because you live with a disability, people tell you that you are inspiring. I want to be inspiring because, because I've achieved Um, I want to be a role model because of what I've done and not because of how I am. That's really important to me. And on a very specific goal, I'd love to be able to walk the West Highland Way with my family, which is which is a walk in Scotland that we've always um, set ourselves and the target to do together. And we haven't quite achieved it yet because of various ups and downs in my abilities. But I'd, l- I'd love to, to do that because we like to walk as a family. And I guess that's why it's really important for me to stay active, because those are the sorts of things that we enjoy together as a family. And so it, it's really important for me to stay part of that. I have no doubt, Emma, that you'll achieve every goal that you set out to. <laughs> I'd like to know what you, how you define courage. Well, I guess owning it and being less afraid than you were before and um, asking for help when you, you don't know the answer or you need support and and doing it now and not putting it off. And uh, if you were to uh, to recommend another brave new girl, who would you recommend? Actually, I have a, a very inspiring friend or somebody who, um, her name is Jade Stat. Um, and she has founded a charity that uh, I should say it's called Street Vet. So she's a vet. And what she noticed was that there was very little um, health care for um, uh, the dogs of people that were homeless. And so she set about offering medical support for the animals of, of the homeless. But she has achieved so much in terms of profile, um, in terms of, of support and in terms of growing her brand she sounds amazing yes definitely would love to interview her uh so thank you so much emma for sharing your experiences so openly for your courage and tenacity good luck with the charity it sounds like it's very much needed 
and you have an have amazing ambitions for it that I have absolutely no doubt that you will achieve. Thank you and goodbye for now. And I hope to see you really soon. Thank you so much. And I just wanted to acknowledge that um, none of the work that, that I do, I do alone. I do um, with Miriam Krieger, who's the physio and it's part of uh, the charity. Um, but also with lots of support from other people um, and we couldn't do it on our own. So thank you very much. That's the power of community, isn't it? Thanks, Emma. (laughs) See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Emma, for showing us that even when faced with physical or emotional difficulties, that with the right attitude, asking for help when you need to and turning fear into action, that you can really own your life your way. You can find out more about Emma's charity at www.adultcphub.org or follow her at adultcphub. Thanks to Silk Studios for producing and sourcing the guests for the show. And thanks to you all for listening. Take care, choose courage and see you next week.